Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Oh my goodness, is there a sporting event on Sunday? And does it matter that the medical officer of health for this province possibly might not know? Rob Benzie joins me to talk about Laurentian University and Tom Vanderbilt on his new book, Beginners. Let's get to it. Hey, happy Friday. I have given up. Absolutely given up. Today I am wearing a tracksuit to work. I am in the office in clothing that I would not have worn to go and get a bag of chips at the corner store a year ago. I wouldn't have. But I've given up. I got hope. No, don't get me wrong. I I got hope. I'm still adhering to all of the measures, but the usual things, the societal norms, I'm done. I'm done. Two things. Two things have happened to get me here. The second, which I'm going to get to, is the vaccine rollout. I'm going to tell you what the Prime Minister had to say outside of the cozy cottage. But the first thing came from the provincial government yesterday, and it has to do with personal grooming. Because the province has now announced that dogs can be better groomed than your local news anchor. Yes, Solicitor General Sylvia Jones' office saying that groomers, dog groomers, can reopen to provide services to prevent, quote, foreseeable and reasonably imminent veterinary care. That includes clipping of nails, brushing of hair, and so on and so forth. We went deep. Here is the thing, thank you, Doug. I Here is the thing that I can tell you f- for sure, 100%, Hundo P, that tonight on the global news between 5.30 and 6.30, if they were to, re- were to replace me with a well-groomed dog, ratings would definitely go up. There's no question. That's a Hundo P, people. I can't handle the bad news anymore. So here's where Justin comes in. That's why there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of noise going on right now. Oh, thank you, Justin. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of noise going on right now. And that's possibly why you're doing precisely what I'm doing. Just saying, forget it. Forget it. Never wearing hard pants again. A belt? Forget it. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of noise going on right now, says the Prime Minister. Thank you. And really what the Prime Minister was doing today in front of the cozy cottage is, man, he was going on the offense. Here he is again, the Prime Minister. We will get everyone vaccinated by September. I love the pregnant pause there. We will get everyone vaccinated by... By September. Thank you. (laughs) He absolutely came out swinging on this thing. He's like, I am on the phone. I am, I am actually calling the heads of these pharmaceutical companies on the regular. Doug Ford, I don't need the firecracker to be placed anywhere. I'm doing it. I'm there. I'm, everybody stop freaking out. Ah, me thinks the prime minister protest too much. It's kind of telling. The way that the information has been going out, the, the way that the federal government doesn't know how many doses of Moderna we're going to get and all the rest of it, it just seemed to be always 
on the back foot about the amount of doses that we're getting and the communication that's going from the federal government to the provincial government. But the prime minister is out there saying, don't worry about it. You're going to get vaccinated by, I think, what month by was September. it? It's September. Thank you. I did, I, I'm hoping that that's September 2021. And then he goes to point out this whole COVAX thing, you know, this thing that's making a lot of news right now about, uh, you know, Canada has butted in line and we're getting vaccines before developing nations and we're just like, we're butting in and saying, hey, up here in the great white north, we'll take those vaccines. Thank you very much. That's not the point. That's not what the thing is happening. We put money into it. We're going to take some vaccines and we're also going to give some vaccines to developing nations. Yeah, I'm not sure if that is the narrative that is flying in the country right now. So there, that's so. There's a couple of reasons why I've I've just gone to tracksuits now, uh, and also because I feel like I'm be kind of comfortable because over the course of the weekend we got we got a big weekend. Hey, Doug Ford. Hey, guys and gals. Oh, hey, Doug. How you doing? Yes, of course. This weekend it is Super Bowl Sunday, and and this. I thought this was bold from the premier. Full disclosure, I'm a Brady fan. Oh, really? You're just going to go out there and say, I'm a Tom Brady fan? I guess. All right. I guess that'll play. The message from Doug Ford goes on to say, stay at home. Stay at home. Don't be going to Super Bowl parties. And, you know, I know people, and I bet you do too, who for for them, Super Bowl Sunday is the social pinnacle of the year. Like, forget Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter. Those all take a back seat to Super Bowl Sunday. So it's going to be tough this weekend. And that message from Doug Ford, that's appropriate. And it's good because apparently the guy in charge of the health response here in the province of Ontario, Dr. David Williams, he may just apparently have just learned of this whole bowl du super, super bowl thing. Here is, oh my goodness, just hold on to the pigskin here. Try not to fumble it when you hear this. Here is Doc Williams responding to a question from journalist Randy Rath about whether Super Bowl parties being held this weekend could become super spreader events. Doc? So, Randy, I think this Sunday you're referring to um, the sports event? (laughs) (laughs) The sports event? (laughs) There is no confusion. There's no confusion. There's a a sporting event. Are you referring to a sporting event on Sunday? So just, here's the thing, stay à la maison pour le jeu de football, s'il vous plaît. Hmm? Even if Doc Williams is, is not aware I'm, that I'm, there... I'm begging now. <laughs> there's a sporting event on Sunday. <laughs> Doug knows, because Doug's a huge football fan, so there you go. Uh, meanwhile, let's look at the facts of where we are right now, if you don't mind. Uh, once again, we have a data problem. Toronto's numbers not accurately reflecting the past 24 hours. We've had this all week long, which is really super concerning because there's all these data anomalies at a time where we're saying, well, we're going to open the schools again. Sure, why not? And then we got Monty McNaughton saying, well, next week, Doug Ford's going to have an announcement about an announcement. And then here we go again with the Ford government, you know, just kind of treating us all like we're watching, you know, we're watching Lost. Yeah, that, I think that's the comparison. Because it doesn't make any sense, but you got to tune into the next episode to figure out 
you know, maybe it will make sense. And then it never actually does. That's, I think, the comparison. Let's talk uh, of variants, because this is a big concern. Because I, I, this is the other thing that, that obviously is, is throwing all the modeling out because we don't know about the variants. And the fact of the matter is, is we are probably not, and I hear this from the experts, we had one on yesterday, not scanning enough for them. And then when we do, listen to this. This is Dr. Vanessa Allen talking about what happened when Ontario scanned all the positive cases back on January 20th. What did they find about the variants? Of the expected over 3,000 samples reported that day, 1,880 samples are included in this interim analysis. And 5.5% of all of these 1,880 samples were screened positive for the N501Y variant. All right, let me, let me explain what you just heard there. A lot of numbers. First of all, N501 mutation. That is the mutation which is found in the UK variant, the South African variant, the Brazilian variant. I won't give you all the particular numbers associated with those, although you know, my style guide from Global News tells me that I should. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the bosses aren't listening because I didn't do that. Anyway, so that's the point is that 5.5% of the cases that they scanned that were positive on January 20th came back with this mutation. And most of them, the vast majority of them, were linked to Roberta Place in Barrie. We just had an absolute tragedy at at, that LTC. We know that the variant got in there, and it has claimed so many lives. But we also have cases that we know, we just don't know where they're connected to. And that means that we have community spread, and we just are not dealing with the kind of information that we need so we know where the where the variants are. How many variants do we have? It's enough to make you want to just put on a tracksuit and watch a sporting event. I don't know which one. There might be a sporting event on the weekend. Doc Williams? <clears throat> the sports event? <laughs> Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us today here on Global News Radio. Laurentian University in Sudbury owes three Canadian banks $91 million, according to documents in a bankruptcy filing that one analyst says will be a test case for how the country's schools deal with growing financial pressures on post-secondary institutions. The Sudbury, Ontario-based university has requested court protection citing widening deficits, declining enrollment, and costs that are related to the pandemic. And in the Toronto Star this morning, quote, this could be the canary in the coal mine, unquote. A progressive conservative conservative insider warned on Thursday. And one of the bylines on that story is my next guest, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, Rob Benzie. Welcome to the program, Rob. Thanks for having me, Alan. What do you mean, or, or what did this insider mean when he said canary in the coal mine? Well, I mean, it's just, it's a, ver- a very big concern. I mean, Laurentian University may be a basket case. It may be the one university, the one public institution in the province that isn't well run. It may, that may be the case, or it could be that this is just uh, the first domino to fall and that we could see, you know, other universities or colleges in similar positions or even municipalities, Alan, because... Uh, you know, if you're a publicly funded institution uh, and you've seen your whole uh, economic model turned upside down by the pandemic, 
as many small businesses, of course, have, uh, you're going to be looking uh, for some help to Queen's Park. And I think that's what uh, that why this bankruptcy filing is so uh, is so important and is so being so closely watched. I mean, the 47 page uh, Ernst and Young report on the uh, on the the to the court to discuss the situation. It's an eye opener. For example, I didn't know that um, uh, workers, uh, a couple hundred of the uh, unionized workers at this university had six days of unpaid furlough and took a 1% pay cut last year when they reopened their deal. Now they're going to get raises uh, this July and then again in January, but next January, a year from now. But it's, uh, it's, it's a scary situation because if this is happening there, could it be happening elsewhere? And this is what the question that Kristen Rashoe and I were asking. Uh, and, and many who are prognosticating the future impact of the pandemic have pointed that, out that the post-secondary institutions are particularly vulnerable, especially ones like Laurentian or, you know, ones that are not necessarily U of T or McGill, you know, those elite schools are perceived to be elite schools, that there's going to be a part on parents and students who say, is this worth it, especially since we're doing all of our learning or can do all of our learning virtually? Yeah, and I think the northern Ontario schools are particularly vulnerable because U of T and Western and Queens and McGill and places like that, they get a lot of foreign students from from, uh, mainland China, from Taiwan, from Hong Kong. Uh, That brings a lot of, of money into those schools. Uh, whereas the northern schools, whether it's Lakehead, Laurentian, uh, Nipissing, places like that, they rely largely on local um, uh, students, and those their local economies have been suffering. Uh, you know, the job market is not great in, in, in the north. It's not great at the best of times, so during a pandemic, it's even worse. So I think that's something that we have to watch for, is, is how do these, these types of universities survive, uh, and how do they survive? How, how has the government reacted Ross Romano, the minister in charge. Well, I mean, his line, and remember, he, Ross Romano is uh, represents Sault Ste. Marie, but his home is actually in Sudbury. Uh, so he, this is a, this is for him a local issue as well as a, a, an issue as the minister. He said, "Look, uh, Laurentian is the exception to the rule that uh, the other universities and colleges are not in this uh, in this situation, um, and and they're hopeful that they can get out of it and extricate themselves from this." But it is still a concern. I know it's a concern uh, in the premier's office, and I know that it's a concern for uh, the, you know, the economy writ large. If they see these types of institutions failing, and I'm not saying they're failing in the sense that it's going to collapse, but it, this is a failure for sure of the system. And if this is happening there, is it happening elsewhere? And if it's starting to happen elsewhere and then this thing cascades everywhere, then it's a problem. What would, be, what would the financial responsibility in terms of the province? I mean, what are we on the hook for? Or would that just be a political decision to whether invest or, or to cut bait? Well, you know what, Alan, the EY report says that the, that the, that the uh, university is wanting a break on its defined benefit pension obligations. So that's a, that's a, that becomes a, an issue that the province has to look at. I mean, do they, do they, are they going to be having to bail out pension plans at places like Laurentian? Um, are they going to have to uh, have more supports for workers who may or may not lose their jobs uh, at, the, at the university? So there's a whole bunch of, of ifs around this. Um, now, it could just be that this is, the, you know, this, that Ross Romano is correct, that this is the one place where it just ha- things haven't been particularly well run for the last few years. And uh, it's maybe the exception and not the rule. And, and I, you know, I'm sure that they hope that this isn't the norm, because if it is the norm, then we've got big, big problems. I mean, the economy is taking a bath 
right now anyway. We saw the, <clears throat> the StatsCan job numbers this morning were not great uh, for, uh, for January. Uh, they're not. It's not unexpected because most of the job losses were in the retail sector because, of course, there was no one shopping because they weren't able to go out shopping. Um, but it's uh, it's a scary time for the economy right now. Speaking with uh, Rob Benzie, who is the Queens Park bureau chief for the Toronto Star, and uh, we have uh, we have Doug Ford standing by as well. Doug, Doug's with us. Hey, guys and gals. There's uh, part of the Premier's Super Bowl message today, which is. Don't go to Super Bowl parties. This follows yesterday's question from our colleague Randy Rath, who asked Doc Williams about whether he was concerned about the Super Bowl being a super spreader event, and it appeared that the Doc... Well, do we have that, Rob? Can we play that? So, Randy, I think this Sunday you're referring to um, <clears throat> a sports event? <laughs> I, Rob, I, I point this out because, again, it seems like we, we have a, a health table that is like, what's going on? I don't know. I think I think that I mean there's so many things that the that Dr. Williams has to worry about. I'm not sure that the Super Bowl may be top of mind. I mean I know I know uh, there a lot of there was a lot of mockery on on social media, uh, especially <laughs> among the Twitter epidemiologists who are all so busy fighting the pandemic that all they seem to do is tweet. Uh, it's extraordinary, really. Uh, Dr. Williams, of course, is not on Twitter because he's too busy actually working. Um, yeah, I mean he's he's. He can be very woolly, and he can be a bit like the dad jokes, and 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 a bit. But I, I mean, I, I I think he knows what the Super Bowl is, and I certainly think he knows what the pandemic is. And and I mean, he's got a very tough job, and it's easy for all of us to be armchair quarterbacks, no pun intended, um, with how the pandemic is being handled here. But I would argue it's being handled better in Ontario than it is in neighboring Quebec or neighboring Manitoba. So there is that. There is some context that's sometimes missing especially on social media, Alan. You and I both know that, having been around this racket for a long time. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm likely guilty of just, you know, firing in the one-liners, and, and I, no, I, I take your you. point. <laughs> <laughs> Never! Not you, AC! <laughs> but your point being that, you know, the, the, the Twitter audio, as you say, or as I call them, the Greek chorus, the, the, the doctors that are not on the health table and are constantly sort of taking the pot shots, that that maybe that, you know, they're not getting the full context as well? I, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is, it is easy to criticize, and they don't have to be logical or even consistent in their criticism. You see, some of them, some days are criticizing one thing the government does, and then when the government does what they want, they criticize that. So I think it's, you know, they're a little like, you know, newspaper editorialists, they, uh, <laughs> they, can, they can have it both ways, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and, I, and I'm guilty of that as a, as a journalist as anyone, you know. I mean, we, are, we all think that we know best. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, though, that it is a great use of anyone's time to spend uh, every hour upon hour on, uh, on Twitter. It, 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 I don't think it's very constructive. No, I, I 100% agree with it. Can we just talk about uh, polling and polling trends and what you're seeing with uh, approval rating for Doug Ford and then vis-a-vis what we're seeing for uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which is increasingly uh, shaky support as Canadians are so worried about the vaccine rollout? Yeah, I mean, we have a, a story that Susan Delacorte wrote on our front page this morning, Alan, that um, talks about a, a poll that they should be worried about if I'm the federal liberals, about talking about people blaming the, uh, it's an abacus poll, people blaming the federal government for the vaccine rollout. <clears throat> we had a poll that campaign research did for us earlier this week uh, that found 52% blamed the federal government 
for uh, for for that uh, for those problems, and it should probably be a hundred percent because it's. It, it, there is no other level of government you can blame for the vaccine shortages. Um, I think 10% or 15% blame the, the provincial government, but the provincial government doesn't have any role in procurement. Its its role is in distribution, and you could argue that the provincial government here hasn't done a great job with distribution, but it's hard to distribute when you don't have anything that's been procured, so um, or you don't have adequate procurement. So I think uh, this is something, and we saw this just you know moments ago, the prime minister in front of Rideau Cottage basically addressing a lot of the concerns that have been raised in the media uh, about the uh, the vaccine shortages and he's now talking to the, the presidents of the of the vaccine companies it's not that long ago that that Ford was uh, that Premier Doug Ford was talking to yeah. the presidents of of the of the, uh, of the, the pharmaceutical firm with the firecracker of the yin yang yeah and the firecracker of the yin yang which I know you love that image as I did but, uh, <laughs> and and a lot of people again on social media were mocking board for that saying oh come on give me a break it's not like that you don't have to phone the pharma companies well the prime minister is now doing it and i think the prime minister is doing it because i think he knows that canadians expect him to be on their case um i think i i'm actually quite optimistic in the long run i think that we will meet our targets for vaccine vaccines um i think that this is going to be a very troubling blip as it as it were but i think by the end of this year i think we're going to look back on this time and say oh do you remember in February and January when we couldn't get enough vaccine and now we're awash in it and we're, we have a glut and we're going to be sending it to the, all the developing nations that we're actually kind of trying to get from get COVAX video from or COVAX vaccine from right now. <laughs> so I think I think it's it's important to have perspective. I think by the end of the year the prime minister's uh, targets will probably be met. And I think that we'll all look back on this time as uh, oh remember how jittery we were. It's like Alan this time about a year ago when we were all. Then yeah. Why are we only doing three thousand COVID tests a day when it should be sixty thousand? Right, right, and it, it, and and you know it's so quickly. It's important to remember remember when we first got the vaccine approved, and it was like, oh, Canada is going to be back of the line, and then they made the announcements about the procurements. Oh no, we're front of the line, and we just kind of whipsaw back and forth in terms of how we feel about it as uh, as the public. Yeah, exactly, and I think. Just the fact of the vaccine, I was speaking to my mother about this, who's, you know, she's 78 years old. She's going to be really happy I'm telling your audience that. But uh, <laughs> she, she, uh, she was, is, 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 hasn't had her shot yet. She still lives in her own home and she's in good health, but she's ready for it. And I, I asked her, I said, are you worried about, you know, when you're in line for the vaccine? She said, no. She said, I'll get it when I get it. And she said, you know, we should be happy that we have a vaccine because this has been so rapid. A year ago, we, we barely heard of COVID-19. Now we have several different vaccines, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is amazing when uh, human beings put their mind on something constructive that we can actually get something done. That's a great perspective. Rob Benzie is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. I always appreciate your time and coming on. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Alan. Can an old dog learn new tricks? My next guest is an American journalist and best-selling author, Recently, when Tom Vanderbilt's daughter expressed an interest in playing chess, he decided to learn the game with her, ultimately playing in beginner chess tournaments, often against kids under the age of 10. And from there, he went on to try to learn other new skills, singing and surfing, for example. And along the way, looked at how the adult brain works and why we old dogs are often so reluctant to try to learn new tricks. Tom Vanderbilt's new book is called Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. 
and he joins me on the line. Welcome to the program, Tom. Thank you, Alan. Great to be here. Well, let's begin with the central question. Can old dogs learn new tricks? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's a lot of messages out there, and these, these were things I had to overcome myself, that you know, the, the idea is it's too late to pick up something like chess or surfing or drawing or singing at, uh, let's say, the age of 50. But I found myself that you know, one of the great things about being a beginner is that you make a lot of progress right in the beginning, which can be a, a very rewarding thing. And I just give a couple examples. I met people in my uh, journeys who were an 81-year-old learning to juggle for the first time, for example, uh, a woman in her 70s learning to open water swim in the uh, ocean in the Bahamas. Uh, you know, so I, I think you know, anything is possible. There's a lot, a lot of negative messaging out there, but it was one of my goals to sort of overcome that. Why is it is it a stigma around learning new things as we get older, or is there actually something in our brains that makes us less able to learn a new skill when we're older? It is a challenge to learn as we get older, especially to be a novice as we get older. That That's very difficult. And when I was playing chess against my then four-year-old daughter, for example, I mean, her her brain was lightning fast. Full, You know, she hadn't learned that many things yet. So chess to her was, you know, she could just feast her brain on that game where I had many decades of things that I had already learned. And those things can tend to get in the way of learning a new skill. If you think about learning a language, it's much easier to learn a language as a child because you're, you're, you don't have that much stuff already in your brain. We adults have all these other, you know, we have a whole history of growing up with a certain language, which makes it a challenge to you know, learn that new language but, because it gets in the way. So I think both adults and children have their advantages and disadvantages when it comes to learning. But um, in a game of chess, I'll just say my, my daughter has uh, seemingly won out in the end. She usually beats me. I, it, I found it so interesting, you know, that your book begins with chess, and and I, obviously you wrote that before the Queen's Gambit blew up. And I'm wondering, I just uh, yeah. wondered, I just wondered what your perspective was to see this inexplicable rise of the popularity of chess. Yeah, I mean, well, it sort of comes and goes. I mean, back when Bobby Fischer was around, it, it was big, and then it went back down. And there's a, a new uh, world champion the last few years, Magnus Carlsen, who's who's been very popular. But I mean, one of the great things for me about you know, and I'm not going to say I'm a great chess player by any stretch of the imagination, but simply by finally plunging into the game and learning a little bit about it, beginning to appreciate some of the, the artistry and, and skill that goes on there, that when this movie did come out, I was now able to watch it with, with this level of appreciation that, you know, would have been lost on me before. They, they tried to explain uh, a little bit. They, they, do, they do a really good job with the chess in, in that movie, I should say, but it would have been like hearing a foreign language I, that I wouldn't understand. But now, you know, I could really sort of appreciate some of that. So I think that's one of the, even if you're not going to get really great at something, you know, take, taking on a new skill just brings you a new level of engagement with the world in all kinds of really interesting ways. You know, it, learning to draw changes the way you see, uh, learn, learning to surf changes your whole relationship to the ocean, for example. So, you know, that's another thing I'd like to impress upon people. You know, you don't have to put in those, 10,000 hours and become an expert level performer. There's, there's a lot you can do in even 10 hours. I'm speaking with Tom Vanderbilt, whose new book is Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. You mentioned before the learning curve, and I, I recall a couple of years ago I decided, you know, I was, I'm going to learn how to paint and to draw, and I took a course, and, you know, in the first going, you know, I, I saw, you know, a real 
progression pretty quickly on that curve on the way up. And then it flattened out, and now I don't find the same relaxation from painting as I did before because now I'm almost more frustrated than before. Talk to me about that process of learning something new. Yeah, I mean, hitting a plateau is a very real thing, and it, it happens in all sorts of things. In surfing, for example, like you say, that in the beginning you make this amazing progress. Uh, you you catch your first wave, uh, which is a great thing. But then, you know, then you have to start looking for waves, and and each time you think you've got it sort of nailed, you're hit with a harder bit of that learning curve, which is going to require even more investment and, and more time, and, and possibly you know new ways of of, of thinking about it to get through that the brain you know the brain tends to become a little bit complacent as we do learn and you know it's often said that if if it if it feels easy you're not learning so when i was doing juggling for example i I would sort of get three balls in the beginning and and that felt great but then i was doing it you know almost with my eyes closed and and that really meant i wasn't learning it had become automatic to me Uh, why did did you pick juggling by the way i I found that an interesting (laughs) choice well, you know, I was once at a carnival with my daughter, and they had one of these demonstrations, you know, learn how to juggle. And we didn't really have enough time, and I didn't give enough time. And I, I think I was sort of haunted by that. And I, wa- I wanted to show off, basically, in front of her. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's also a great way to think about motor skills. It, it's sort of, and psychologists have, have actually studied juggling for this very reason. It's a very easy thing to have people do in a lab and measure how they do. And it's got all sorts of fascinating things about it. You know, they, they've studied people who have, been learning to juggle. And after one week, they recorded these significant changes in the brain's neuroplasticity. You know, this is sort of the the brain reshaping itself to, you know, handle this new challenge of juggling. So that's another great thing about skill learning is just, you know, it's sort of like a high intensity workout for your brain. And if you learn different skills at the same time or in succession, you're you're putting your brain through these sort of different hurdles, which which I think is nothing but good. When you look at the the different skills that you tackled, um, you know chess, surfing. I, I kind of think I put singing in the in the middle as being a kind of partial intellectual and or and partial physical pursuit. But talk to me about the difference about you know doing something that is is pure brain power like chess and something that is much more about physicality like surfing. Yeah, it's a great point because I, you know one of the things I did, for example, was make a wedding ring with a jeweler friend of mine because I had actually lost two of them while trying to learn to surf. My, my wife was actually not thrilled about this, but <laughs> as, someone who works, as someone who works with, with their hands all day, only in the sense that I, I push buttons on a keyboard, you know, I, I really felt divorced from the idea of, of uh, you know, of, of working with real things. So I wanted to do this. And I found that process very interesting because I felt it was as much about my fingers were sort of telling my brain what to do as much as my brain was telling what my fingers should do. There was a real almost two-way interaction, and, and sometimes it would, it would sort of hurt in, in both of those areas. I was, I was trying to do some very delicate uh, move on, on, on this ring, which, by the way, had some sort of uh, representations of chess pieces on the, on the inside of the ring, which is a very cool feature, but I, I really took, took in the spirit of that. But, um, did, did, you go, did you go with a knight? That would be hard. Well, what, what piece did you put on the inside? Well, I, I did, you know, one, I, I was the, the king, my wife is the queen, and I had uh, one for my daughter. My daughter also actually wanted to be the queen, but she, uh, settled, for <laughs> <laughs> she settled for bishop in the end. So, But, you know, I, I just feel like there's something really 
you know, scientists speculate there's humans have this innate desire to use tools and to use their hands. And I, I really feel that. And making this ring was just a great way to sort of get back to that and felt incredibly therapeutic. And, and, and you're right, it was a challenge in a way that was entirely different to chess. I mean, chess, of course, you move physical pieces, but that there, there's not much skill to that. It's, it's really purely cerebral. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, where are you now? Are, are you learning anything new? Have you, have you decided, well, that's that, I've closed the book and move on? No, I mean, these were not things I really wanted to, to check off and say, been there, done that. They're all, you know, sort of these life skills, I like to think, that, that continue to need further development. And as you mentioned before, you know, you, you do hit certain plateaus where, well, if you want to progress to the next stage, I might have to work a little harder. But, but there's always something new on the horizon. I, I do have a short attention span. so. Um, <laughs> Welcome to being a journalist, I suppose. Exactly. Tom Vanderbilt, thank you so much for being on the program. I very much enjoyed your new book. Thank you. Tom Vanderbilt is an author and a journalist, and his new book is Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. Well, that's it for me this week here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with me today and throughout the week. Please remember to stay safe. Be good to each other. And this is the most important thing. I say it all the time. I know you think, what are you, why are you preaching at me, Alan? Why are you preaching? You know why I'm preaching? It's because I'm right. And that is, take a moment today. Take just one moment and do something for yourself. Take a moment and tell yourself... Damn, I'm good. I got this. That is the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.